Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name's Bob, your host, and I'm always hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's going on, man? Not much. High school football playoffs about to start up here in Ohio. Got some really good teams I'm going to cover on Friday. The Midview Middies, one of the best teams in Division Two. So... A lot of talent on that team. One of the best wide receivers in the state. One of the best quarterbacks in the state. I actually saw him play last weekend, too, in a really good game against final regular season game, but against another playoff team. And that turned out to be a fun one. So it should be a fun road in the high school state football playoffs, even though there are seven divisions in Ohio, which is ridiculous. But we're not going to debate all that. Just saying, it's going to be a fun week. Yeah, certainly the we we rolled back the clocks over the weekend. It's been gray and rainy here for about a week. Uh, fall is definitely on its way, and high school football playoffs are the first domino in the in the playoff tree to fall. Soon we're going to get talking about college football playoffs, and then the Super Bowl and everything like that. But first, we have to wrap up a different sport on this podcast. The Kansas City Royals beat the New York Mets in the World Series in a five-game series. Uh, Chris, the Mets had their chances for sure. Did you watch most of these games? Did you get to to check out uh, a, a lot of it? What, what were your thoughts of the series in general? Sadly, I did not check out as much as I wanted to. I watched it very intermittently. It's a busy time of the year for me in in high school because I I do a lot of uh, high school sports coverage and with the other sports in their postseason and football gearing the end I had a lot of kind of freelance assignments that always seemed to take me away from the World Series but I did get to watch enough of it to know the Kansas City Royals are probably the most resilient team ever this this team was down and out at least two or three times during this series. I mean, it's kind of surprising that we're not looking at a game six or seven at this point, given that the Mets had their chances. They had leads in the ninth, I think, twice and blew it, most notably in game five. This Kansas City crew is resilient. One through nine, they can just slap you to death. They don't have a guy who jumps off the page statistically when you look at their lineups on paper you say oh that's a good lineup they got a couple 20 homer guys a 300 guy a couple guys in 290 that's a good lineup you have to see them play to really understand how deadly they are they just dink and dunk and don't strike out they have good at bats they are smart base runners uh they they field the ball very well. I think they only committed like two errors the entire postseason, which is ridiculous. That is how they beat you. They are not a team that you can just look at on paper and say, oh, yeah, they're okay. You have to see them play. And in seeing them play, you understand just how good they really are. And I think resilience is just the word that sums up their postseason for me because no matter what the score was, no matter what the scenario was, they never believed they were out of it and they always found a way to win. Yeah, this is the first World Series winner to win three games 
when they were trailing in the eighth inning in, in a single world series. Uh, just another stat for that. Uh, the Royals outscored the Mets 15 to one in the later than the seventh inning in all games of the world series. And then you have to feel for Julius Familia. Uh, we talked in our, our world series preview that both these teams had closers that when it comes to the ninth inning, they're going to shut it down. We both said that Wade Davis probably has a little bit more, uh, nastier stuff but Familia was just as good but he's leaving this World Series with three blown saves and some of that is situational which we're going to talk about in a second but you have to be winning in those situations for you to have a blown save situation so I feel for that guy he was on the mound when all three of the Mets late inning collapses happen and then just to to highlight your you know unheralded lineup I mean the World Series MVP is Salvador Perez the catcher who uh, ironically was the last out of the World Series last year when the Royals lost to the Giants. I mean, he, he hit 364 in the series, but the the stat that I think uh, earned him the trophy was he was 6 for 12 in two strike situations the whole World Series. That's a 500 average when he's facing two strikes in in, in the count. Uh, just on average, you know, the Royals in the series hit 202 and the Mets hit 114 in those situations. So Perez was just... Uh, he, he'd never got out in, in those situations. And that was pretty much embodied what the Royals were this season and what they were, especially in the postseason. Uh, so many chances for them to leave, to, to exit the playoffs, but they just kept bouncing back. And then talk about the irony. Uh, Daniel Murphy going from New York Met legend to committing the most costly error in the world series and and ultimately the the error that that finally clinched the world series for the royals so a lot of things happen i do have to say this wasn't even though we we had come from behind victories and and extra inning games for me this series wasn't the most exciting series i've seen in the past few years i I don't know if it, it was the same way for you but i just wasn't it didn't captivate me like i thought it would no, it's hard to say a World Series that doesn't go seven games is the most exciting because there have been so many of them that have reached Game 7. A baseball Game 7 is really there's nothing better than it, in my opinion. Last year's, I think, was far more exciting than this year's. Honestly, I know this is going to hurt you, Bob, but if you're a neutral, unbiased baseball fan, I'm going back to that 97 World Series, Indians-Marlins. That was a tremendous World Series. That Game 7 was, from a neutral baseball standpoint, fantastic. Unfortunately for us, we're Cleveland fans, so we don't like it as much. But when I think of all-time classics like that, I think of the Diamondbacks and the Yankees. Series like that, that yeah. you got to go the distance in order to get sort of that that ring. And, and when, you, when you're only... Three to, or excuse me, four to one, a five-game series. Even though they had two really good extra inning games in Game One and Game Five, and Game One, I thought was after Game One, I'm like, wow, we might have something really special on our hands. But I, you got to go seven in order to get that for me. And I think it is kind of hindsight, and I think that it's maybe not be fair. But I'm sorry if a team wins four to one. It's just not that captivating. And I think what what did it for me was, even though Game 5 was still kind of intense, the Royals came back, they were up 3-1. to one. Had the Mets won that game normally, wouldn't have done anything for me. 
It's still 3-2, two games in Kansas City. I think it would have been way more intriguing if the role was reversed, if the Mets had that Game 5 comeback. And we're still talking about a World Series now. The Mets pulled a rug out from Kansas City, going back to Kansas City for Game 6. I think that would have definitely upped my interest a little bit. But when a team goes up 3-1, it's just hard for me to get my arms around the series because that team is likely going to win. Yeah, certainly. I think just building off of that, when you have only five games played, the one team only winning one of those games, you don't have the, you're not building up a World Series legend on that side. So, you know, last year we saw Madison Baumgartner versus the Kansas City Royals, and that was the story for for the Mets. They didn't really offer any hero that could that you could compare against what the Royals were doing. So, yeah, it just didn't offer the same amount of drama just because it ended so quickly. Uh, Chris, that last game, though, you were the manager. Would you send Matt Harvey out there to pitch that ninth inning? No, I wouldn't. I don't think that that was the right call. And you can say that it's in hindsight. It is. But when I was watching the game, that was a game I got to watch live the last few innings. I saw Matt Harvey lobby to go back in. And I said when he was doing it, you can't change now because it's in his head. Okay, you've made your decision. You don't want to put him out there with that in his head. His pitch count was 102. He had been on a limit, limitations all year. Don't send him out. You have an excellent closer. Bring him in with a 2-0 lead in a clean inning. Don't bring him in with runners on. I think that was part of Familia's problem, was that he came in a couple times with runners on. It's not a clean inning. And yeah, you're the closer. You're supposed to take care of it. I'm not making excuses for him. But I think the Mets had an opportunity to set their closer up, closer up for a little bit more success than they did. I, per, I would not have sent Matt Harvey out in the ninth inning. Whether or not it would have made a difference because the Royals are a resilient bunch, I don't know. But I certainly, I don't, I would not have sent Matt Harvey out. Yeah, I think just in general, Terry Collins uh, didn't made some choices that now look very bad and you, you have to wonder if he kind of mismanaged this world series. I'm, I'm agreeing with you uh, with that final start in the world series for Matt Harvey. He now has pitched. He set the record for most innings pitched in a season post Tommy John surgery. Uh, John Lackey set that record a few years ago and, and he broke it with the innings that he threw in the, in the, in game five of the world series. I mean, he, you have you have your closer, and you have to trust in him. If you're going to win these games, if you're going to mount a comeback from three to one, you're going to have to lean on your closer at some point. I understood that he he blew the two games earlier, but uh, yeah, I think I think I think that was a a key mistake, and it was obviously the ultimate mistake for for Collins. But I just think that he uh, kind of mismanaged that bullpen multiple times in the, in the series, and that was the straw that broke their that broke their back. Yeah, I do. And look, the whole thing, the whole World Series thing, whatever team loses the World Series, the manager is going to be thrown under the microscope, no matter what. It's just the way it is. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I certainly think that in the immediate aftermath of things, it's easy to lose sight of what a successful season a team like the Mets had. We're talking about a team that wasn't even supposed to make the playoffs by most accounts. I think most people had them a wild card at best. Certainly not a division champion, not with the Nationals in there. Nationals were a very popular pick, preseason pick to win the National League. So 
when you take a step back, I think the further away the Mets get from this World Series, the more they'll realize what a strong young core they have, what a great season they had, even if they didn't get the title. They ha- have, there's a lot of reason to think that this team is going to be in the conversation to get back to the World Series at some point in the near future. Oh, certainly. With that young starting rotation, uh, they definitely have a bright future. Uh, but you were there. You know, you were there in it. You had a chance to win the World Series. There's no guarantee that you're coming back. And they have to be questioning some of the decisions they made during that World Series. To make a couple analogies here, after that 2007 trip with the Cavs made with LeBron James, everyone thought in Cleveland that they were going to get back to the finals multiple times. They didn't do that on his first tour. Now, obviously, last year he came back and they got to the finals. But there's no guarantees, as you said. Green Bay Packers, when they won their Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, I thought that team was locked and loaded and ready to be a dynasty. They have still not gotten back to the Super Bowl yet. And I know those are high expectations, but that team was loaded. That defense was really strong. The defense faltered. Even though they went 15-1 the next year, they lost in the first, in the divisional round to the Giants who went on to win the Super Bowl that year. So there are no givens in sports when you have an opportunity to win a championship you push the chips all in. And that's why during our trade deadline podcast, you and I both advocated for the Royals and the Blue Jays and teams that haven't had a lot of success over the last few decades to go for it because they should know more than anyone these opportunities do not come around very often. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, But looking forward into the next season, I mean, both these teams are returning most of their guys. Uh, Mets do have to make a decision about Cespedes, but... Uh, the future's bright for both of them, so time will tell, and we will see if they're going to repeat next year. Uh, here's a stat, though. No National League team has lost a World Series and then won it in the pre in the following year, so history is against the Mets. History is definitely against them, but since we're looking at next year, a couple of moves. Dusty Baker hired by the Nationals. Interesting fit. Don Mattingly left the Dodgers and is going to the Marlins. What do you think about those moves? Well, hopefully for the Marlins, they finally find somebody that they are confident in for more than half a season. I think this is what, manager number nine in five years, I think. It's some it's a ridiculous number. Mattingly, by all accounts, had a really good relationship with the players themselves, so hopefully he can uh, provide some stability. Dusty Baker I've always liked. I mean, he's a two-time National League Manager of the Year, has always managed in the National League. Uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we thought that Bud Black was going to be the manager for the Nationals. It was reported that he was, and then uh, I guess things fell through, and now it's Dusty Baker. So uh, maybe something else is going to come out about that story. I think Bud Black went a longer contract, but uh, I like Dusty Baker. I think it's a good move. It's good to see that, um, you know, I think we're trending. There are two different trends going on in managing. One is hiring general managers, which uh, we saw the Marlins do with their guy uh mid-season last year and then the Mariners did it naming an assistant GM and then I think other teams are trending back towards hiring seasoned baseball vets and you know the the youth movement in managing might be coming to an end and now they're going back to proving guys like Dusty Baker and Don Mattingly who was a young manager but he's certainly a proven manager now yeah certainly I mean these things kind of go in cycles one year it's everyone has to hire the guy who's been there before the next year everyone's trying to find the next whiz kid because one whiz kid just got to the world series so you're, you're right it's a very cyclical process 
Uh, Mattingly, everyone knew, was going to get a job because he was let go by the Dodgers. I think Dusty Baker kind of came out of left field for me, not to use a baseball pun. I thought he had retired and was happy in retirement and really wasn't looking to manage. So, hey, you know, more power to him. He certainly has shown that he can manage at a high level and uh, should have success there. I mean, uh, Washington's locked and loaded, so it's the table set for him. Yeah, certainly. And I'm also glad just for my diversity standpoint that Dusty Baker's included. Uh, MLB was coming under fire with their managers trending back towards a very whitewashed. (laughs) No pun intended. No, not no pun intended. I mean, that's that's a a phrase (laughs) for what they're doing. No, Um, I understand. I understand. Um, But yeah, no, seriously. I mean, they they definitely are coming under fire for not having enough African-American managers or even diverse managers of any race. I mean, it's mostly mostly old white guys out there. And so certainly refreshing to see a little bit of diversity up there. I'd like to see more, but hey, sometimes you just got to take what they give you. Yeah, certainly. And there are only 30 jobs, so I mean, I don't... That's true. It's, I, mean, I mean, it's very competitive, but I, I would think that there, with all you know, with all the African Americans that are playing sports and playing baseball, you would think that there are some more qualified African American managers out there. I don't know what the process is like, but it's just a little kind of head scratching to me that that there aren't more out there because yeah, there are only thirty jobs, but I would think that there are some qualified candidates out there who could fill them. Certainly, yeah. You, you do notice it when, when you think about it, but, um, yeah. So any last thoughts on baseball? Not really time to put the 2015 baseball season to bed. It was fun. We'll be back probably for free agency, spring training, but that's a ways down the road. Yeah, certainly. Um, it's going to get colder. And so the thought of baseball always makes me a little bit warmer, uh, in these winter months, but we are in the thick of the NFL, and it's kind of crazy to think that heading into week nine, we still have four unbeaten teams, Chris. We've got the New England Patriots, the Denver Broncos, Cincinnati Bengals, and Carolina Panthers. Panthers survived a mud bowl last night. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that. And I Denver, did watch that. I watched all of that game, actually. Yeah, it started off just so sloppy, and then finally oh, yeah. the rain kind of stopped, and they started to throw it. A little bit better not I wouldn't say it uh it was a shootout of any uh, of anything we've seen before and then the Broncos on Sunday night uh a clash of two undefeated teams between the Broncos and the Packers Broncos laid the hammer down man uh that defense is scary what were your thoughts about that game my thoughts are I think Denver has been a little, how can I say this, micromanaged by the critics. I think that this undefeated team has been the most scrutinized undefeated team ever because everyone's focusing on Peyton Manning, and I understand. He hasn't played like Peyton Manning, but he hasn't played bad. He's still played really good, and on Sunday he played excellent. But that defense... Just took Aaron Rodgers and one heck of a Green Bay offense and beat them down. I mean, it was not even close. Aaron Rodgers looked lost out there. The whole team looked discombobulated in a funk, whatever you want to say. I understand it was in Denver, but that defense crushed them. And that's a darn good quarterback and a darn good offense. And it's making me think that I I think Denver is largely overlooked in this grand scheme of things. 
And I am tempted to say that they may be now the team to beat in the NFL. Oh, I'm I'm going there. I think with this statement when holding Aaron Rodgers throughout an entire night to 77 yards passing to holding the Green Bay rushing attack, which includes a mobile Aaron Rodgers to just 90 yards rushing in uh, – no, that was, sorry, that was at Denver. Um, I think this is the best team – in the NFL right now. And you can make a very strong argument for Cincinnati and new England. And I'm not discrediting them in any way, but if you go up against Aaron Rodgers and that high powered offense and show them up like you did last on Sunday, I'm sorry. And you have an undefeated record to boot. I'm impressed. I'm incredibly impressed. I think just in terms of quality of wins, the Broncos might have a couple more that are more impressive than the Patriots or the Bengals. They have wins against the Vikings as well, which is a five and two team and uh, the Oakland Raiders. And they, they beat a healthy Baltimore in week one when Baltimore was probably at its best. I mean, we, we know Baltimore is terrible now, but uh, you know, Baltimore hasn't lost a game by more than seven points this whole year. So they, I'm not, I'm not saying that Baltimore is a great team, but Broncos have been impressive, very impressive. That defense has to be considered the best defense in the league. I, you know, people are loyal to Seattle, but it, it's Denver this year. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm on the train and it has nothing to do with Peyton Manning has everything to do with that defense that they have, which is just intimidating as all get out. Yeah. The defense is definitely the best Peyton Manning's played with. When you look at their schedule, the Broncos, that is, they're most impressive with is usually the Packers. They played some good teams. They played some bad teams. They've struggled in all of their games up until Sunday. I think that was part of the problem with Denver that people were looking at, that they were only winning by, I think, all of their games. I'm looking at their schedule. There was only one game they won by more than 10 points, and that was Detroit 24-12. You look at Denver's upcoming schedule, though. I mean, they've they've played some good teams. They got the Colts next week in Indianapolis. That's a huge game for Peyton Manning. I don't care what the Colts are looking like. It's going to be very emotional for Peyton Manning to play in Indianapolis. He obviously didn't wasn't affected by it the last time. I think the Denver Broncos are going to win. But don't underestimate the, the X factors there. We're going to learn a lot about the Patriots and the Bengals and the Broncos because the Broncos get to play both the Patriots and the Bengals. The Patriots are coming up here in about a month and the Bengals in week 16 so both of those games in Denver Bengals and Patriots have to go to Denver so Denver has a chance to take the number one seed the Patriots I don't believe play the Bengals yeah they don't play the Bengals so Denver might go undefeated. First off, I don't think any of them are going undefeated. But the point is, there's going to be some attrition here. At most, the Patriots and Bengals are the only two teams who could truly go undefeated in this AFC side because they both have to play Denver. So when you look at looking out, you're going to at least see how the Patriots and the Bengals stack up with the Broncos in the regular season. And that Bengals game on Monday Night Football in Week 16 could decide a lot like, a first round buy or the number one seed if things keep going the way they're going. So there's definitely going to be a lot of intrigue down the stretch in this NFL season with regards to the Denver Broncos. 
Still a pretty tough schedule. Otherwise, they still have to play the Raiders again, the Steelers in Pittsburgh again, the Chiefs, who are better than their record. Pretty tough back nine for the Denver Broncos. I think they're the most impressive team because of that defense. I do think, though, that the Patriots and Bengals have the arsenal to beat them. But it will be it's definitely going to be very intriguing to watch because now you have Peyton Manning, who isn't doing the offense that he wants to do, but it could be better for him at this point in his career that he's not playing in that Peyton Manning offense that we're accustomed to. Oh, yeah, I think a Peyton Manning led a vintage Peyton Manning led offense does seriously does serious harm to your defense just because you know they they score in bunches and they score it quickly and that defense rolls out now you're playing at a pace of play catering towards a smash mouth defense you're trying to run the game that run game is getting better by increments Ronnie Hillman and CJ Anderson are, are finally combining to give you a, a decent enough attack I think it serves Peyton Manning very well to to take it easy and to not give us those vintage no huddle, hurry up tempo offenses that we've seen in the past. I think it it serves this team great gains to to run that way. I I just I think they're they're a better team, and I think th- the wins that they've had just they they have impressed me more than what the Bengals or the Patriots have. I mean, the Pats had the Steelers without Le'Veon Bell and Martavis Bryant. The Pats got to go to Dallas, which was supposed to be a, a great game, but no Tony Romo, no Des Bryant at that point. They got to play a, a injured Andrew Luck, who is coming back from his first game. Oh, I, I'm not saying that they're. Let's let's stop putting asterisks next to every single Patriots win because first of all, a not, couple no, counterpoints. Not, I, a couple look, counterpoints. First off, no Le'Veon Bell is going to be every NFL team now because he's out for the season. So. Only a few teams are going to get to see Le'Veon Bell. The Cowboys, I'll give you, but the Indianapolis Colts. Let's back up here. It was in Indianapolis. No, what game. what Patriots game has imp- is like has been the impressive announcement of the Patriots this year. Well, I thought that when they beat the New York Jets, that was a very strong win. The New York Jets are a very good team, and I thought that that was a gritty win for them. I think slapping the Dolphins around was a very strong win because the Dolphins had improved under that new head coach and they destroyed them on a short week. So I think they've had a couple good wins on their resume. And yes, they beat the Steelers at home. They didn't have Le'Veon Bell, but Ben Roethlisberger was healthy then. I know they didn't have Ortavius Bryant, but look, man, they've had some good wins. I'm not saying they, they've been... Look, they, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm just saying the Broncos have impressed me more. Okay. Don't well, I mean, don't that's, don't that's jump just to defend the, your team, man. I'm I'm not. They are certainly a good one B at this point. The okay, Broncos impressed me more. Here's the thing, though. Look at the Broncos schedule too. Other than the Packers, who have they really played? I mean, you got at Chiefs. That's a good win. But if we're gonna put asterisks next to things, they won on a fluke fumble. The Raiders have been a good team. They won at the Raiders. Baltimore's a bad team. Detroit's a bad team. The Browns are a bad team. The Vikings are an okay team. I mean, Vikings are five two, and two, and they're an okay team. They're they're a product of their schedule. I'm not sold on them. Regardless, I, the Broncos smashing the Packers down this week is more impressive than I've seen the Patriots or the Bengals do in, in a one game basis. It is the best win of the of the year so far. It could be, but I think you all are also discounting Cincinnati's schedule too because they have a 33-13 win over the Raiders, which looks a lot better now. 
And they beat the Seahawks in a very dramatic fashion at home, who are still the two-time NFC champions. So, And they just beat the Steelers in a gritty way. Look, I'm not saying that beating the the Broncos beat an undefeated team at home and they destroy them. That is the most impressive win on all three schedules. But I think I don't think that any team has had a tremendously tough road so far. I think all the schedules are pretty balanced, with the exception of that Green Bay game. Denver has played the toughest team of them all, but other than that, I don't think that they there's that big of an imbalance in the strength of schedule. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I wasn't saying there's a big imbalance either i just they are marginally more impressive than the other two but hey here's what i like the most though sunday night football thanksgiving weekend broncos patriots monday night football week 16 broncos Bengals. both of them in denver we're gonna have a chance to figure this all out in a couple months here so i'm not too worried about any of it I'm, I'm not too worried about strength of schedule because that's what I like about the NFL. There's no BCS points. There's no margin of victory points. There's no formulas or anything. You just play the games, get to the playoffs, improve yourself. So in good time, all three teams are, have, have very strong seasons, and it's unfortunate that one of these teams is going to be the three seed and not get a first-round bye. That's going to be very intriguing for me to watch how this race ends up. But we're going to figure a lot of this out on the field with the exception of the Patriots and Bengals. They won't play until unless they meet in the playoffs. So we are going to see just what all three of these teams are made of as soon as the schedule unfolds. So right now, yeah. I, I think they're all very impressive. I agree with you. The Broncos are the most impressive because that defense has been dominant all season. And what that defense get against Green Bay has been exceptionally was exceptionally impressive. But... I'm just saying, we're going to figure it all out very shortly here. So just yeah. get back and enjoy the popcorn. I think the Broncos are going to eat Andrew Andrew Luck alive. I agree with that. I, I, he's not healthy. He's not playing well, even with his injuries. And, yeah, you know, we did not give the Carolina Panthers any love in this conversation. What are your thoughts on them? Are they the clear number four team? Yes, and you could argue that Green Bay is still better than them. But, hey, we're going to find the answer to that, out to that question this week because they showed out. If Green Bay had won that game, we'd have another undefeated showdown on our hands. So we're going to learn about the Carolina Panthers this week. I think this is their first real big test. And we'll see if they can announce themselves with the other four. The Bengals had this kind of test earlier in the year when they beat Seattle that was an old guard team, and I think beating them sort of legitimized them because the Bengals are a team that always gets to the playoffs and lose. They don't win the big game. And I think winning that Seattle game legitimized them a little bit. The Broncos and Patriots and Packers are going to get the benefit of the doubt because they've done it for so long and they have great quarterbacks. Not that Cam Newton isn't a great quarterback because I believe he is, but the Panthers, I think, need a show-me game. And this is certainly a show-me game. If they beat Green Bay, I think that will legitimize them a little bit because they're at that level Cincinnati was at. They always get to the playoffs, but they don't go very far. We'll see if they can get up and beat a team like Green Bay on that elite level. Yeah, certainly. That'll be interesting. And just, you know, the I worry about the Panthers' offensive game and their long it's long-term... Uh, 
can they sustain this for a whole season? Because Cam Newton has accounted for 15 of their 19 offensive touchdowns and already has 64 rushing attempts. Some of those hits he took last night at Monday Night Football, they look pretty brutal to me. Hits that a quarterback you're not accustomed to seeing. So it's not, I'm not taking anything away from what they have done. I just question if they can keep doing it when the injuries start to mount up. It's really impressive what Cam Newton has done, though, to lead this team to a 7-0 and record without Kelvin Benjamin who and without anybody else really to replace him. Greg Olson, a tight end, being his best target. Jonathan Stewart, uh, his best running back. It's been really impressive to, to watch them play, and that defense is a pretty good defense, and it is very good at getting to the passer and is very physical. So uh, nothing to take away from the Panthers if I had to pick right now, I probably would be inclined to pick the Green Bay Packers as a better team. But, hey, if the Panthers can do what the Broncos did against Aaron Rodgers, they certainly will be the best team in the NFC come next week. And that defense in Carolina is reason to be excited about the Panthers. And I do owe Carolina a slight apology. Five seconds ago, I said they hadn't played many people, but I said Cincinnati beat Seattle. The Panthers also beat Seattle in Seattle. Very impressive win. So the Panthers have shown on this run that they can beat some good teams. I really think, though, the spotlight's going to be on them here. I think this is going to be one of those moment games. It's in Carolina. I mean, talk about that if you're a Green Bay. You have to go to Denver and then go to Carolina, face two of the best defenses in the league on the road. That's not exactly a cakewalk. So I think this is this is a big test for Carolina. I think if they can get this win, I think a lot of people will be rallying around them as the number one team in the NFC. Yeah, certainly. And they'll control their own destiny for a number one seed, which is huge in the NFL. Yeah. For sure. So if we're ranking the four, I think we both agree that the Broncos are on top and that the Panthers are fourth right now. Would you say the Patriots are better than the Bengals? I think so. Honestly, I think those top three teams are are very close. And if you if you flip the order, it wouldn't surprise me. But I think it's Broncos, Pats, Bengals. Yeah, I agree only because the Bengals – still have to win a playoff game. I think the Bengals are going to be the Bengals until they win a playoff game, and that's just the way it is. I'm sorry, Cincinnati fans, but when you got Manning and Brady who have had so much postseason success, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. I'm not saying that the Bengals don't have a chance, and I'm not saying the Bengals aren't a good team, but I think that most ranking systems are going to favor the benefit of the doubt. But the Bengals are going to have a chance in that Week 16 to step up and beat Denver and prove themselves right before the playoffs begin. So certainly a opportunity for them, and maybe they can finally shake that you know that monkey of not getting out of the first round. I don't think they've advanced in the playoffs in a very long time. It's been at least 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. No, it's it's been a very long time, and you know Andy Dalton was probably born the day they won the last time <laughs> or something hey. like that. Think about this though. Dalton and Newton, same draft class. Could be yep. in the Super Bowl. Just saying. It's not it's not impossible. Yeah, it could be interesting. Uh, what was that, 2011? Yeah, there's a 2011 draft class. Look at the, the 2011 defensive draft class is probably the best defensive draft class ever. It's got J.J. Watt, Von Miller, Alden Smith, Justin Houston, Chris 
Harris Jr. It, it's stacked. Like it's like basically the all pro team as a, a Richard Sherman. I think Richard Sherman's on that list too. It's ridiculous. And then look at all the quarterbacks that were taken before Andy Dalton, Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert, Christian Ponder. I, I know. think some teams won a mulligan there. Yeah. Locker's out of the league. Is Ponder still on the Vikings? Blaine Gabbert's about to start for the Niners this week in, in, in place of well, Kaepernick. Over another guy in that 2011 draft, Colin Kaepernick was drafted right after Andy Dalton in that draft. Yeah. That's surprising. Oh, by the way, there was a trade in the NFL, too, that will affect the little Denver Broncos. The Vernon Davis trade. A couple of sixth-round picks. Seems a little low for Vernon Davis by name, but when you look at his season, he hasn't been that spectacular. Do you think he'll have sort of a revival in Denver? Um, I don't – I'm not sure. I think it sounds a little bit better than what it's actually going to be. First off, uh, a player moving teams in the NFL midseason never seems to greatly impact the team. And then Vernon Davis has not uh, – been completely healthy for a long time nor has he been all that productive and it's not Kaepernick's fault because they did have a very good relationship when Kaepernick just took over so I'm not sure I mean Vernon Davis is probably definitely better than Owen Daniels uh in in terms of a receiver but the the Broncos didn't need to make this trade but if Davis can get back to that form that he was a couple years ago then they're all the more deadlier for sure yeah, it's one of those why not trades. They gave up two sixth round picks. Why not? You who are those two sixth round picks going to be better than a seventy five percent Vernon Davis? I don't think Vernon Davis is one hundred percent this year. I think to to your point about Colin Kaepernick, I think that's the reason why he's struggling. And it's and I agree with you. It's certainly not Colin Kaepernick's fault. Uh, but but if Vernon Davis is seventy five percent of his former self, that's better than I believe what you're going to get in the sixth round of either of those drafts. So. Why not? Why not make the trade, take a chance? And if not, they still have a lot of receivers. It's not going to hurt them in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it's a smart move for the Broncos. Honestly, I think the Broncos should keep should keep adding, keep trading, because you're on a very small window with Peyton Manning. So, you know, why not? Yeah, that window's going to last about, what, 8, 9, 10, 11 more games? Because I, yeah. honestly, I honestly think he's retiring at the end of this year. I, I can't see him coming back. For one more year. I'm not saying he won't. I'm not saying he definitely will, but you gotta think that this is the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that it's heading that direction. So if you're the Broncos, why not forfeit a draft and, and forfeit a couple years of of talent to to just load up to to go all in on this year? Because I think this is their one great chance. Because that defense as well is on some very uh, short-term veteran contracts so you know, it's not going to last in Denver and they need to take advantage of it another update just kind of came by actually Cowboys released Joseph Randall very surprising move I know he's had some off the field issues but going into the year he was supposed to be like the next sort of DeMarco Murray take that place from a DeMarco Murray and now he's released kind of a surprise there again I think it's more uh his off the field stuff than his production, even though his production wasn't exactly blowing the blowing the roof off the ceiling. So we'll see. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, they did sign Darren McFadden for this reason, just in case Randall didn't work out. And uh, he's 
McFadden already took over the job because Randall's been hurt, so it's not really going to affect them going forward, though. It, it's pretty surprising that a guy who was thought to be so productive is already off the team. Certainly, certainly very surprising. You want to know what was very surprising this weekend, Bob? What's that? That Miami Duke finish. Did you see yeah. the video? Yeah, I've, I've watched it a couple of times now. Uh, I don't know how that got upheld, how they picked that flag up. Uh, man, that, that was crazy. First and foremost, though, I mean, credit to Miami for keep keep running that play and, and, and to keep trying to score and, you know, shame on Duke for not being able to tackle. I mean, it was, it seriously, it was a, was a rugby play, like a serious, it looked like playing, they were playing rugby and it was awesome to see. But then when you, when you see some of the slow mos of, you know, the, the guy's knee clearly on the ground, that block in the back that they picked up after they reviewed the play, it, you know, lots of debacles and uh, it's, it's a mess right now for the ACC and an embarrassment. First off, how do you spend nine minutes reviewing that play and miss some very, very obvious overturns? I don't understand yeah. that at all. They spent, they took forever to review that play and they still got it completely wrong on so many different counts. And I mean, there was an illegal block in the back, the tackle. And then there was the play from player from Miami who ran out into the field who was carrying his helmet while the play was still going on. How do you miss all of that? I can understand maybe missing a penalty. But when you review something, aren't you looking for the knee? I mean, aren't you looking at that? You took nine minutes to review the play and you couldn't see that the guy's knee was clearly down. It's not even close. You're looking, you're looking at it in real time. It's not even close. I don't understand how this game was completely botched. Yeah, it's definitely embarrassing. And man, I don't, I think this is one of very few special occasions where the league needs to change the result of the game to a win for Duke because it was a very isolated incident on the last play of the game that went from a losing score to a winning score for Miami. So, why can't they change the result of the game and award Duke the win? Are you for that or are you for keeping what the rest called? I'm all for overturning this game in favor of Duke. And I understand the arguments against it. There are people who say that this would open Pandora's box, that every game will be challenged, blah, blah, blah. But this is an extreme situation. Look, I understand that if you overturn this in the near term, there will be more petitions to challenge the result of games. But if the NCAA and teams continue to iron fist those requests as they've done in the past, then there will be few and far between. But this is a very rare situation where a call was clearly missed on instant replay on the last play of the game. I think that's what does it for me. It was the last play of the game. If you overturn the last play of the game, to me it doesn't affect anything. I would overturn it and give Duke the win. I feel that that is the fair thing to do and it would it's it's affecting so much. I mean, you not just Duke season, but the ACC season. The Duke could have been a quality ACC opponent in that ACC championship game 
And now you might be left with a team that's not as strong. So even if you're looking at Duke as a sacrificial lamb for Clemson to get into the playoff, now you might not have as strong of an ACC championship game, and it could affect their chances. I, I don't think I think Clemson, if they're undefeated, would get in. But say Clemson loses to Florida State this week, somehow still gets to the ACC title game, then they might need a quality opponent in that title game. So it could affect a ton. It could have huge ramifications not just on Duke season, not just on Miami season, but the entire college football playoff and season in general. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, yeah, it's the last play of the game. They, they they should definitely change it. And I don't, it, it's mind boggling that they're so staunch and not even considering reversing this play. You you suspended the re- the referee crew for two games. Uh, you So you've already admitted wrongdoing there's a very clear fix, a very easy, clear, clean fix, and that's just awarding Duke the win and moving on. Uh, there, you know, there are lots of times where the last few seconds of the game, a mistake happens. You know, we've seen clock malfunctions in the NFL, that batted ball in the end zone by the Seahawks. Um, you know, the fail Mary a few years ago. Those I'm not even that I I don't think should be overturned. But this one is very obvious, very clear, and the ACC is getting destroyed by any fan of college football because it really is its embarrassing for them. It ha- they could easily fix this and easily fix all the ill will that's being directed towards them, but they're refusing to even consider that. Yeah, I agree. I think it just goes back to this notion that they don't want to open this Pandora's box at all in any way, shape, or form. I can understand the argument. I'm not I'm not just dismissing that argument, but I think in this situation they can make an exception and still continue to walk the iron fist line of not overturning games. Yeah. Yeah, if you just make a case by case basis, no room for precedent, you can easily handle this and, and and move on and everyone would be happy except for Miami obviously, but Oh, I don't think the Hurricanes will be my be very happy, but certainly I think the vast majority of people would prefer that outcome that Duke was awarded the win. Yeah. More ACC news. Frank Beamer retired over. He's going to retire at the end of the season. Bob, I've always thought that he is one of the most underrated college football coaches of all time. Virginia Tech, man. That, I mean, that, that, that program has been him. He was like, he's kind of like the Joe Paterno of Virginia Tech. It's going to be a little odd to see him outside of college football or Virginia Tech with a new face. I'm still getting used to uh, Joe Paterno not being at Penn State. So it's going to be a little bit odd without him down the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, I think we're losing an old guard. You know, Steve Spurrier retired a few weeks ago, Frank Beamer. Uh, you have to wonder when Bill Snyder is going to leave the game. You know, these old guys that have been there for a long time that bring a different, uh, just kind of a, a different persona on the sideline and in the recruiting trail and in interviews, it's they're they're going extinct. And you know, people are getting older, and that generation's leaving. So it's going to be sad because, yeah, he, you know, Virginia Tech isn't a historically great football program, but he, with him at the helm, they they had some really good years and had some really quality teams. So. It it is sad, but um, I guess it, it's 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 a rarity really to have one guy, one head coach associated as the face of the franchise, as the face of the school, in this day and age. So 
good for him for for as long as he's been there and it'll be sad for him not to be there anymore He's been there since 1987, and he has 234 wins with the school, 276 wins total because he spent about six years with Murray State prior to taking the Virginia Tech job. They were a Division 1A independent for four years before joining the Big East in 91, and he really started taking off in 93 when he went 9-3. and Two years later, got back-to-back BCS Bowls before they were BCS Bowls in the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, had a national championship appearance in there. So a lot of success for Frank Beamer. Will certainly be missed as one of the greatest coaches to walk the sidelines of college football. Some other news out of the college football realm. Ohio State Buckeye is taking a play out of the Browns playbook, finding a way to do something dumb on the bye week. (laughs) <laughs> JT Barrett, uh, I'm sure you all know, was cited for a misdemeanor, uh, operating a vehicle under the influence. I believe it was an OVI, not a DUI, but OVI. And he's suspended for the Minnesota game. Not only that, he was revoked a semester's worth of financial aid. I believe it was for the summer semester. Bob, first off, what do you think of the situation, and do you think that Ohio State handled it right? Because they they came right out. I mean, I think it was within 24 hours of finding out about the incident and saying, yes, he's suspended, and then Urban Meyer, I believe, revealed the next day that he would be losing part of his financial aid as well. Yeah, um, well, first off, it, it, it couldn't happen at a worse time because Barrett finally regained his starting position as quarterback, and then in the bye week has fumbled it away back to Cardell Jones. So that's an interesting situation. You know, Ohio State is stuck with Jones for a game. They don't even have the the option of turning to Barrett if should Jones uh, struggle. Obviously, they still have Braxton Miller, who will be their second option if Jones continues to struggle. Um, secondly, uh, you know, they came out so quickly because there wasn't any real wiggle room. Obviously, he it was announced he was uh, arrested and charged you know, they had the, the blood alcohol content and all that, and he's underage. So, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of room to say we're, you know, pending an investigation or anything that he was arrested for OVI. Ohio State has a very clear rule book uh, on handling that, which I found interesting because uh, him being underage, 20 years old, should count as a second offense and under their rule book should say that he should be suspended for two games. So I wonder, is that second game coming? Did the bye week count? Uh, or are they just going with the one game and then the revoking of, uh, I think it was like life in aid summer tuition or something like that. It wasn't even a full tuition. It was just the, the kind of extra expenses that you have in the summer that they're revoking from him. So, uh, I guess, what do I think about it? I, I just wonder what, what happened to that second game in the rule book or am I just misinterpreting that? But I'm not I'm not harping on it too much because I you know I don't think it's like a terrible offense or you know, he, deserving of two games. Uh, good that they they came out so quickly and suspended him for at least one. They explained that because because it was a misdemeanor, that's why he wasn't held to the two game standard. They said because it was an OVI that that's why he wasn't bound by that standard. Something along those lines. Man, so, they, they they find wiggle room in everything. I I, I don't I. It just seems like they they were searching for a way to get out of that two game suspension. Hold on, I'm looking it up. Okay, it says I found according to this Fox Sports article, 
The school's drug and alcohol policy would have required a two-game suspension for the 20-year-old Barrett if he had been charged with a felony. The misdemeanor charge gives Coach Irvin Meyer to dis- the discretion to pass down punishment. So, so yeah, like I said, because he was charged with a misdemeanor, he didn't fall under that school's policy and was able to be punished by Coach Meyer instead of the school's policy. Okay. I mean, that, that's fine. The DUI would have been a felony, I guess, an OVI misdemeanor. So, yeah, they got lucky. They got real lucky because I think it was in writing, obviously, that if Meyer, who brings a reputation with him, if he didn't lay down the the law to the T, uh, there have been some heat coming his way. So uh, the suspension is fine. And, you know, to come out and say that they're even punishing him a little bit with the scholarship is, is fine. Uh, looking on the field, though, Minnesota is a is a good team. Uh, I don't think that Ohio State's going to have a problem. They still have Ezekiel Elliott to run the ball down the middle. Cardell Jones has shown flashes that he can be the starting quarterback. So I think it's going to be fine. I think uh, the only problem is you've now reopened the discussion, the potential to have the same quarterback debate when you thought it was finally settled in November. Yeah, I think it's going to be fine, but I think Ohio State secretly hopes it's not too fine because if Cardell Jones plays the world off, well, then you're back to square one. You got a quarterback controversy again, just as you solved it. And so I'm sure they want Cardell Jones to play well, but I don't think they want him to sort of overwhelmingly look like the can't-be-benched starter to set up another controversy. So that'll be interesting to watch on Saturday, and I've actually got drew the assignment for the Chronicle Telegram, so I will be in in the horseshoe for that game, and it should be fun. It will be definitely have some drama around those just the quarterback situation and maybe Cardell Jones with his what looks like his last chance to grab this starting job because I would think that if he doesn't play well JT Bear is just going to be slid right back into starting into the starting role yeah definitely it'll be interesting I expect a first-hand report on this podcast next week about it oh you'll get it it's going to be intense though because it's an 8 30 game or eight o'clock game sorry excuse me I'm getting it confused with the NFL, those start times. But either way, it's a primetime game, so it's going to be starting a little later. Right, right. Okay, so heading back to the NFL, uh, we did have a lot of injuries. A lot of big names were done for this season. Le'Veon Bell, Matt Forte, Steve Smith, a guy that I'm really sad about because he was just always fun to to witness the trash talk, the the big play and he was putting up a monster season at his age, which was really crazy. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on these injuries and how they're going to impact the rest of the NFL season? Well, the Ryan Fitzpatrick one is big because the Jets were a legitimate playoff contender. They also lost Geno Smith in that game. His status is in question. So we might see Bryce Petty, not the way I envisioned Bryce Petty to get the starting job, but I did say in the preseason that Bryce Petty might be the starter mid season. So in a long roundabout way, that prediction could come true. I certainly didn't want it to happen this way. I think the Le'Veon Bell injury is a big one because Pittsburgh was just starting to get healthy and now they're kind of set back a little bit. So that's just another hurdle for them to get over. But D'Angelo Williams ran very well when Bell was suspended for those two games. So they might not be in too much trouble. And I agree with you with Steve Smith. He was one of my favorite players to watch. Uh, you you kind of wanted him to be on Carolina right now. They could use a wide receiver, and it would be fun because he was the Carolina Panthers for a very long time, probably is still their 
best player in their franchise's history, with all due respect to Cam Newton, but Steve Smith was there for a very long time. And so it would be kind of bittersweet if the Panthers were to win the Super Bowl and Steve Smith ends his career like this. Uh, would be kind of bittersweet. Just to be clear, though, the Panthers, I believe, cut him, got rid of him. He did not walk willingly. I don't think he wanted to leave Carolina. I thought he was pretty mad when he was found out that he was not going to be retained by the team. So I don't. it's nothing like that, but it's definitely kind of a bittersweet end to what likely is his career. I think he said he was going to retire at the end of the season. The one injury that kind of shook me up a lot was Ricardo Lockett's. Did you see that one? The the hit he got in that Dallas game that he had to be carted off the field? Yeah, I've seen the the replay. I didn't see it live. But yeah, that was um, uh, not a good look for the NFL. And that's the hit that the NFL tries to get rid of every year. Um, Yeah, it it was a little disturbing. No, certainly. And it's only going to intensify this outcry from some people to get rid of kickoffs. I don't think that's the answer. I think kickoffs are a very huge part of the game. But there's no doubt I think the NFL is going to look at do something again this offseason to change kickoffs in some way, shape, or form. What, I don't know, but I do think that that's going to go under the microscope as a result of this injury. And we certainly hope that Ricardo Lockett has a speed of recovery and everything works out okay for him. Yeah, no, certainly. I think they need to always be looking at a way to make kickoffs a safer part of the game because that clearly is the most dangerous part when everybody's running full force at each other at full speed it's very tricky back to ryan fitzpatrick because i forgot to mention him third in total qbr right now he was very good this year the jets are going to be very uh are going to miss him a lot a lot more than i thought uh he, he was more impactful than i even thought he would be even though i thought that he would uh be a really good quarterback for the Jets uh he's impressed and I think the Jets are hoping that that ligament that he's going to be able to find a way to play this year because uh Geno Smith Bryce Petty they can offer they're good alternatives but they weren't doing what Fitzpatrick was doing so hopefully he can get back on the field because the Jets were a surprise team this year yeah no certainly and I think the Jets were with him uh, playing like a playoff team they I thought were going to be one of the two wild cards given what the standings are right now. But without Fitzpatrick, it certainly leaves the door open for that sixth spot to be a little bit up for grabs. Same with Pittsburgh, too. I thought Pittsburgh was another wild card that doors open a little bit. So the AFC playoff race just got really interesting in a bad way because you never want to see the doors open when guys go down. You want teams playing at their best with their best players. And so sad to see Le'Veon Bell and Ryan Fitzpatrick out we don't know the extent of Fitzpatrick's injury. He could still come back, but Le'Veon Bell is done for the season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All righty, man. Well, we packed everything we could into this podcast, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Please come back next week to listen to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FinleyRoadSports.com. Until then, you can catch up on some awesome blogs. My brother is in the middle of an AFC South how to fix that division series, a four-part series. The first two are up on familyroadsports.com. You can catch the other two later this week. I've got a blog up there on the college football playoff and 
how it can be fixed as well. So we're both in kind of fix-it mode right now. So you can check that out at FenleyRoadSports.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter, FenleyRDSports. Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes. And check us out on Instagram, FenleyRoadSports. And come back for more content. What are you talking about? Clee Talk. All those fun things. We'll have more for you next week. But until then, take care. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.